Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ottawa's new interim police chief isn't playing around. He says he's ready to give the city back to its residents. Is the Ottawa occupation coming to an end? The Emergencies Act debate, a question period yesterday, turned ugly pretty quickly as the opposition continues to grow. Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies, joins us to talk about that. And inflation hits a new three-decade high in January, heaping more pressure on the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates. That's coming up, too, on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The legislation that covers the uh, Emergency Measures Act was actually introduced in the Commons yesterday afternoon. And uh, as Karen Rebo reports, well, uh, things are getting pretty messy down there. And uh, between what's going on with the interim police chief and what's happening in the Commons right now, it's a rather dramatic situation. Here's her report. Steve Bell took on the interim chief role following Tuesday's abrupt resignation of former chief Peter Slowly. Bell warned dug-in demonstrators that police are ready to use methods people are not used to seeing in the nation's capital. Police have handed out notices to those encamped outside Parliament Hill, warning the Emergencies Act gives them the power to seize vehicles that are part of the nearly three-week-long demonstration. Trucker Spencer Bouts says he won't budge. If everybody gets scared and acts out of fear, then we will definitely be weakened. The Trudeau government tabled motions last night in the House of Commons on invoking the act and on its specific powers. The motions will be debated today. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Right, let's get a sense of, of what's happening today. I, we, we know some of the schedule things that are supposed to be happening, including the debate that she just talked about. Uh, but on the streets of Ottawa, it's, uh, it's an interesting picture that's being painted right now. I want to bring Alex Boudelier into the uh, conversation. Alex, of course, is national politics reporter uh, for Global up in our nation's capital. Alex, a uh, busy day today. Thanks for jumping in with us for a few minutes. Yeah, my pleasure. Right off the bat, let me ask you, uh, what, what are you hearing? What are you seeing about what's going on on the street? I saw some reports earlier this morning that suggested there's a larger than usual police presence uh, for this time of morning. A lot of those uh, fluorescent yellow jackets walking around. Uh, is is there a feeling that something is imminent here? Yeah, there, I, I think that there's a there's a general sense of foreboding. It's kind of the storm before the storm. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we're seeing uh, images on on social media of police being bussed in on OC Transpo buses to the downtown. So I'm not sure if this is the big show or not, but certainly uh, I, I would expect to see over the next few hours, an increased presence of, of police from multiple police forces, federal, provincial, uh, municipal, as well as uh, from around uh, Ontario in the downtown core. Uh, you know, very uh, sort of uh, stern warnings from the Ottawa police yesterday saying anybody who's still here uh, when the enforcement starts could be charged, uh, could face very serious consequences. But, you know, from the, the early reports we have so far this morning, uh, things, you know, typically don't really get super active before 10 a.m. Uh, with the encampment. But uh, certainly there are still people there. They are entrenched and they are, you know, vowing not to leave. Last night we saw sort of a tearful, sort of very emotional uh, video from one of the main protest organizers, Tamara Leach, who, you know, basically said she expects to be uh, heading to jail today. Uh, so certainly the convoy uh, organizers expect something to happen. Um, you know, the protesters expect something to happen and the police are showing up in force. So, uh, you know, I don't predict the future, but I think you can draw your own conclusions. What about the comments from uh, Interim Chief Steve Bell yesterday? Uh, the, the phrase that jumped out at me was, uh, uh, warning that uh, they, meaning the police, are ready to use methods people are not used to seeing in the capital. Any idea exactly what that it infers? No, because, you know, uh, what people are not used to seeing in the capital over the last three weeks is any kind of direct enforcement from the police at the main encampment. Um, so that could mean anything from more tickets to, um, you know, serious force to try and, you know, force the, ocup- the occupation out. Um it's a chaotic time, obviously, here in Ottawa, but it's made even more chaotic by the, the shakeup in the top ranks of the Ottawa police and, you know, the absolute spectacle that we witnessed at council yesterday um, in terms of council voting out the, the chair of the police board and a, a mayoral candidate, uh, Diane Deans. Um, you know, a schism between pro-Mayor Watson councillors um, and, and those on the outside of that inner circle. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really adding more chaos into an already chaotic situation. 
Now we figured, I think a lot of us figured anyway, when, when now I guess ex-chief uh, slowly handed in his resignation that there probably would be other heads rolling, but I don't know if any of us thought it was going to be so soon. And it was quite a day, uh, as, as you've been reporting. Uh, uh, you know, it got pretty raucous in the, in the commons, of course, when they introduced the legislation that they're going to be debating today. And uh, a lot of back and forth and some rather colorful language. And uh, it's like Ottawa City Council said, do you think that was rough? Hold my beer. I mean, because it, it <laughs> there, there was blood on the floor after this meeting. It was pretty ugly, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, from everything I've read about it, because I, I was working on other stories last night, um, you know, it does seem to be quite an unusual sort of meeting for Ottawa City Council. I used to cover council back in my days at, at Metro News. And, you know, there was always a couple of songs, you know, a lot of agreement, a lot of congratulatory talk around the table. And then, you know, we all broke for lunch and that was it. Uh, this was a very different meeting, um, very chaotic, very emotional, uh, a lot of uh, tempers flaring. And based on, you know, some of the municipal observers here in town, um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of tensions that have been present in this council over the last number of years boiled over uh, at a time of crisis, perhaps the worst possible time for those tensions to boil over. And just so people understand the dynamic here, uh, Jim Watson, who, of course, I guess everybody's aware of now, uh, been the mayor for quite some time, is not running for re-election uh, this fall. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the council that got ousted from the uh, chair of the Police Services Board, uh, I guess, is going to be a candidate. I, I assume she still is. But uh, again, there are accusations of, of, you know, the Watson camp on council versus her count. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, added on to that, it was is the added story that it, it leaked out yesterday that apparently they've hired an interim chief without going through a hiring process, which is that's a no-no in municipal politics, yet it seems to be something that's got a lot of the councillors on edge. I, well, for a whole lot of reasons, I guess everybody in the city is on edge. Yeah. Yeah, and for your listeners who may not follow Ottawa municipal politics all that closely, you know, the trademark of Watson's rule as mayor has been um, working behind the scenes, the mayor's office working behind the scenes, Watson working with like-minded councillors to come to some kind of conclusion before it really gets to the council floor. So, you know, the, a lot of the work is done at committee, which is dominated by pro Watson councillors. Um, and, you know, by the time it gets to council floor, there's, there, there typically isn't a whole lot of debate. Um, obviously, we saw a whole lot of debate on the council floor last night. I just want to return to the, the parliament side, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, yesterday, uh, you, you're, you're quite right to point out that it was quite an ugly debate in the Commons uh, on, on both sides of the aisle. And I think there's a lot of hope, given the gravity of what we're seeing right now. I mean, the Emergencies Act has never been invoked. It's, uh, it's hard to overstate how significant a step this is. It's going to be a historical turning point in this country. Um, I think there's a lot of hope that MPs will take their job seriously and, and stop trying to just insult each other. Because, you know, if ever there's a time where Canadians, regular Canadians are watching Parliament, it's going to be today. And, you know, history will judge how they act. Yeah, and, and you know, there's an awful lot of bombast and finger pointing. And, of course, uh, a lot of it debate about even some of the Prime Minister's comments uh, where he characterized the Conservatives that were uh, not, who, by the way, have gone on record as saying they're not going to support the act. Uh, about, you know, supporting people that wave swastikas on, on Parliament Hill. And, of course, uh, at least one uh, Conservative MP uh, of Jewish heritage is, is upset about that. And that caused a lot of fear on social media, didn't it? Yeah, and it's also just frankly not true, like blatantly, demonstrably not true. Um, you can have your opinions on what the Conservative response to the convoy protests were at the beginning, how they evolved over time, but it's just blatantly, demonstrably untrue to say that Conservative MPs were standing and supporting people who were waving swastikas in Ottawa. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, but on the other side of the, the aisle, um, you know, they have their own share of, of bombast and, and questionable comments. You know, Conservative MPs, including the former leader, Andrew Scheer, suggesting the Prime Minister was invoking the Emergencies Act to stifle dissent. Um, I, I don't know how helpful an intervention that is. Uh, it uh, is also demonstrably untrue. Well, yeah, a little bit later on in the program, I want to talk about some of the stuff that, uh, well, Fox News has been saying over the last little while, uh, sure. un under the guise of demonstrably untrue. Uh, but that's the message that's going out there. And of course, you're right. I mean, you know, some of the conservatives anyway are, are using those as talking points uh, in the debate. Do you get the sense, though, I mean, that they understand uh, the, the severity of, of what's going on here 
and the implications thereof, and that they're actually going to, you know, put the childish behavior behind them and actually debate this thing intelligently once they start, I guess, about 45 minutes from now. Well, Bill, you know, I'm an optimistic soul. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 think, I think there's a possibility. Um, certainly, I don't want to suggest that, you know, MPs don't understand that this is a big deal. I think they do. Um, but, you know, we're not in the realm of consequence-free politics anymore. Um, this is not just posturing and rhetoric. This is serious, serious stuff that, you know, is unprecedented for a reason, because it's extreme. Um, and that's not to say it's right. That's not to say it's wrong. It's just to underline the gravity of what we're going through here in Ottawa right now. And, you know, I, I always hope that, you know, politicians will rise to the occasion. I, I can't help but picture in my mind's eye of, of two stages here. The debate in the Commons, of course, and, and we, as you say, we can't, you know, diminish the importance of that. Plus, what may be the beginning of enforcement of what's going to be happening right outside the buildings themselves later on today on, in, in front of Parliament and, of course, some of the other areas of downtown. I'm not trying to compare this apples to apples, but it just reminded me of the 68 Democratic Convention, you know, when they were trying to talk about what they were going to do when there were riots going on in the streets. I don't know what's going to happen when police start enforcement there. I'm hoping that, you know, some of the, if, if you can use the phrase, more moderate protesters, I just going to say, all right, enough is enough. I don't want to get arrested. Let's just pack up and go. But I get the sense that there's some people there that are ready, willing, and able to participate in this in a in, in a more aggressive way. And I, I'm a, I don't want it to get ugly. I don't think anybody wants to see that happen. But the possibilities are there, aren't there? Well, I mean, Jim Watson is not uh, Bill Daly and the Ottawa Police. Yeah, there's that. The Chicago Police Force. Um, from, from 68, but I take your meaning. Um, and I would just say that the moderate elements of this protest um, have probably already left. What we're dealing with is people who are pot committed to staying until their demands, their various demands are met. That's not going to happen. So at some point, you know, the rubber does meet the road here. Um, look, nobody, nobody wants violence, um, you know, at least of all me, but, uh, you know, at the same time, when you've got two sides where you know their their end game is is you know diametrically opposed, the possibility is also also there. And I I just add to that a third stream that I don't want to be overlooked in all of this, and it, it might be, is that the the government released its justification for the emergency act last night. It's quite a shocking document. It suggests coordination between uh, you know extremist groups at various protests across the country. Um, white nationalists being drawn to these protests, whether or not, you know, that was the initial phase of this protest. It wasn't, but certainly the government believes it's there now. And they sort of mentioned that ex-military and ex-police are also helping the protesters with their logistics and their security. That's a remarkable thing to say. There was no evidence provided to, to back that up, and I'd expect that people are going to be demanding um, some more evidence on, on that. Certainly I will in my questions today. And is, is the, the floor of the House of Commons the, the venue to do that? I mean, it's, it's, I know it's going to be a very heated debate, but I mean, can they demand to show the, the proof of that? Uh, anecdotally, I think we know that, you know, we've seen some of the chatter on social media and we've seen some of the pictures of some of the Ottawa police service members, of course, they're, you know, fist pumping some of the, uh, the protesters and things of this nature. So it, it wouldn't surprise us, but in a situation like this, where they're actually using it to substantiate a piece of legislation, you would think that they'd offer some sort of proof to say, here's the evidence of this. Well, I mean, it's a delicate situation too, because I mean, they have intelligence, but intelligence is not evidence, right? So if, you know, eventually some of these cases are going to go to court, and I expect that they will, some of the organizers likely will be arrested, um, you know, you can't be sort of leaking out intelligence about what you suspect, um, because that could have, you know, a very serious impact on whether or not, you know, prosecutors can get a conviction. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated situation, but at the same time, if you're invoking a national emergency, and you're saying that essentially you have an extremist conspiracy, because that's what we're talking about here, that is threatening our very democracy. That's an extraordinary claim, and extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Well, exactly. And I think uh, as evidenced by, look what's going on in, in the courts down in the states. I mean, it was almost, well, over a year ago now, of course, the insurrection in, in the state capital in Washington 
and they, yeah, some of the low-hanging fruit have already been dealt with. But I mean, to try to find out exactly who was behind this, uh, they can't even get witnesses to come before them. So it's if if they're going down that road, this is going to be a very long, drawn-out process. Yeah, and and maybe an overdue process because the threat of white nationalism and and domestic extremism has been growing over the last number of years. We've documented it sort of every step of the way, and uh, it's not something that I think until now has been well understood by, by you know, the general public. Now, it's a very difficult debate that we're about to have. Obviously, you know, I'm not suggesting that every protester or everybody who supported the convoy is a white nationalist, but I am stating as a fact that white nationalists have joined this protest movement and are active participants in it. That's, that's just a statement of fact. So I think we're, we're you know, in for a very long a very difficult discussion in this country about domestic extremism and and the real threats the country faces. Uh, it's going to be a very active day, a very active couple of days, of course, and uh, we'll be watching, of course. Go to uh, globalnews.ca, by the way, to get the latest from Alex and uh, his colleagues up on the, the nation's capital. Uh, stay well, my friend. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Take care. All right. Stay safe. Thanks. You betcha. Alex Boudelier, of course, national politics reporter for uh, Global National up in Ottawa. And as we say, it could be a very active day. They're kind of looking at the fact that this is a long weekend here in Ontario, of course, with Family Day on Monday. I'd like to get this thing cleaned up. That seems to be the expectation anyway uh, from some law enforcement officials. So we'll see what happens later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very uh, volatile day in Ottawa yesterday. Promises to be just as volatile, I guess, uh, later on today. But uh, as we found out yesterday, several agencies are moving forward with measures now to help shut down the convoy in Ottawa. Uh, as uh, some members of uh, Ottawa City Council say, the siege of Ottawa, uh, now that the federal government has invoked the Emergency Act, uh, Global's Kyle Benning has more on what the measures are, are and exactly what impact they're going to have. The Ottawa Police Service is sending a stern warning to protesters through a letter. It says anyone blocking the streets or helping others block streets are committing a crime and is asking people to stop in order to avoid criminal charges. It goes on to say the Emergencies Act allows police to prevent people from coming to or from the city. Quote, the act also provides police with a number of measures, including the ability to seize vehicles that are part of this demonstration. The Canadian Bankers Association also says it will comply with the act. A statement from the group says this will not impact the vast majority of customers. Kyle Benning, Global News. So with that going on and that presentation being made, well, they started the discussion in Parliament itself about uh, this act, the Emergency Measures Act. Uh, as the government, as they are required by law to do, laid it out. And, uh, well, things got pretty active. Here's a little sampling of what was going on yesterday. Positive, optimistic, hopeful vision for public life isn't a naive dream. It could be a powerful force for change. If Canadians are to trust their government, their government needs to trust Canadians. Those are the words of the Prime Minister in 2015. These people, very often misogynistic, racist, women haters, science deniers, the fringe. Same Prime Minister six years later as he fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the Prime Minister lose his way? When did it happen? Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who will be able to get their lives back. These illegal protests need to stop, and they will, Mr. Speaker. That's just a small sampling. It didn't end there. Of course, that was started off by uh, Conservative MP uh, Melissa Lansman and uh, answered by the, the Prime Minister. If this is an indicator of the way things are going to go in the debate today, I just wonder how much progress is actually going to be made. But let's talk about, uh, well, tone. Let's talk about uh, attitudes. And let's talk about uh, the way that Parliament has handled this whole thing over the last little while. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Muhammad Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview strategies. Uh, Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Look, we've talked about question period and, and debates in the House of Commons uh, in the past, and you know, we've, you know, I think use the analogy probably very apt sometimes, uh, that they look like a bunch of you know kindergarten kids on a sugar high sometimes. They're just totally out of control. Uh, but it seemed to reach a new level yesterday. I, I understand that you know this is a very emotional 
time. It's a very important time in our history because of the debate that's going on. But talk to me about the tone of, of the debate yesterday and, and how that impacted you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Uh, they've always called House of, House of Commons uh, or a question period uh, a circus for, for a reason. But yeah, things have taken, uh, you know, it's it's division, the, the rhetoric, the political temperature that continues to keep rising uh, is, is worrisome for me. And, you know, when we see an occupation in downtown Ottawa or even on some of the major trade routes uh, connecting Canada and the United States where calling for the overthrow of the government there have been you know nazi flags and white supremacists and everything of the sort you know it begs the question of you know there's frustration from both sides and there's and within the house you're you're seeing you know the frustration of the prime minister just you know and, and probably shocked that to this same minute that there are still conservative mps defending it and you saw there was his his pushback saying well there are still conservative mps standing and supporting this convoy that still flies uh, white supremacist flags, Nazi flags, this, that, whatever, uh, but and can realize that what is going on there is a threat to democracy, right? Like it's, it's. I think he's truly shocked that this is still going on. You'd think that uh, as a country, as a patriot across, you know, the House of Commons aisle, that that people would rally and say, you know, what this is actually wrong. This is out of control. Um, this is not politics anymore. This is now uh, a place that we need to bring the te- political temperature down, and bring rational, logical thought back into this debate. And, and people are seeing it, and, they, and even the speaker complained about that, saying that he's heard uh, Canadians complain that this is a total farce of what's going on in the House of Commons. So with that in mind, and I, 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 I agree with your assessment. I, I think, you know, there's... And again, if I could use the same analogy, it's about time some of the adults in the room started to act like adults and, and got control of what's going on here uh, instead of spewing this thing back and forth. Because it seems like there's so many things that are being misrepresented here for partisan purposes, which, again, is, is part of politics. I get that. And, and we see that an awful lot, not just in question period, but the way things are going. But I don't hear too much from the opposition parties, either, you know, the bloc, certainly the piece, the conservatives or the NDP about the severity of this. I mean, it's pretty clear, Candace Bergen said yesterday, you know, they're not going to support this legislation. Well, that's not a shock. I mean, you know, they've been supportive of this and encouraging these people for the last three weeks. Of course, they're not going to support the legislation. But none of them seem to understand the severity of this and to see this as an attack on our democratic system. And, and you know, and as a matter of fact, they, they're pointing to the, to the government and simply saying, you guys are overstating this. You know, there's, where's the common sense in this discussion? I guess that's the question a lot of Canadians are asking now. I think uh, a lot of people, even who watch politics on the regular, are also asking that question, Bill. And and it is, you know, you're right that there's these opposition parties have played are trying to play the politics, right? And but politics is is you know, hey, you're not doing the right thing here, you're not doing the right thing there, you know, pushback, this, that, whatever. And obviously, there's a little bit of exaggeration, but you know, when there's a a literal occupation from the parliament calling for the over to the government. There have been those in the protest, you know, some of the organizers have called for like the head of the prime minister. Uh, you know, there, there was no real condemnation of it. You're seeing a little bit, sometimes the NDP kind of put out saying, no, something needs to happen, but it's really just let the, let the government wear all this. Let's let them put all the pressure on them. Let's make people even angrier, uh, which is not really helpful for the country when they're trying to reconcile what's going on Seeing this, that, you know, we're all getting flashbacks to January 6th of 2021 in in Washington, where uh, a bunch of people were kind of given, you know, uh, way too much political anger to charge up and and feel like they need to attack the government and not cause the change and all that stuff that, you know, that went on that we all know. Um, it's, It's shocking to me that at some point you think that people would want to pull back and say, you know what, this has gone way too out of control. And you saw that, you know, with Kenneth Bergen and the blog saying, well, like, we're not supporting this. You know, you, you, you had the police powers. Well, you have to enact something called the Emergency Act because things are quite out of control and, and there's a th- th- serious threat to national security. You know, our borders were, were being plugged up. Uh, there's, a you know, an occupation in downtown that seems to not be able to handle by local police or even provincial police. So there needs to be more powers. So it, it is it is disappointing to say the very least of what's kind of the rhetoric going on 
Yeah, and I know this is all going to be part of the debate later on today in the Commons, you know, as to whether or not this is a national emergency. That seemed to be uh, one of the talking points that the Conservatives wanted to to beat here. And and I I, I, I understand the politics of that, but uh, as a Canadian, I'm very concerned when, as you say, they choke off our our economic supply chains uh, at the Ambassador Bridge and as they did in Manitoba and as they were doing uh, in Alberta and God knows what else they may have had planned. Because that 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 does cost it's costing jobs, it's costing people's incomes. You know, people can't go to work, and then the, as you mentioned, you've got as uh, some of the Ottawa councillors are talking about the siege of Ottawa. I mean, the downtown core has been paralyzed. Uh, stores can't open. Those people haven't been able to go to work. They're afraid to walk down the streets. I mean, you know, I see some of the accounts uh, of people that live down there, not just people that said, "Well, I watched it on CTV, and I don't think it's a, uh, there's a problem going on there." It's a problem. It's an occupation. It's not a protest anymore, and uh, it's, it's our nation's capital. Uh, you know, define definition. Do you actually have to physically have a gun to somebody's head before somebody thinks that there's an imminent danger? And, and by the way, on that point, they, they you know, got a cache of weapons at the Alberta border. What the hell were they going to use those for, do you think? Yeah, and, I mean, they also arrested four individuals that had a hit list of police officers they wanted to kill. And and some of those couple of those guys are connected there are here in Ottawa. You know, it's... And, and, and what people also forget, and I'm glad you brought it up, was in Ottawa, the downtown core has been shut. But it also, for example, the the main mall here employs, I was last told, like close to 2,000 people. Uh, and there's a ton of restaurants are also closed, shops are closed. So there are more people unemployed for the last three weeks in Ottawa than anyone has ever shown up for this protest. And I don't know what that says. And a lot of those people can't afford to not get a paycheck from them because they work in restaurants, they work in retail shops you know, minimum wage work that they're that they need to put food on the table or pay for school or whatever it may be. So it's it's totally lost in all things. And um, when we continue to enable or take a soft approach, uh, and I'm speaking this for the opposition, the, you have to be uh, cognizant of there is a lot more that's going to go on, go on here. I mean, this is a threat to national security because are, are any um, adversaries around the world are watching this? This this occupation, the, the one news channel that's uh, monitoring the most or giving most airtime is Russia Today, uh, the state-owned TV service. Um, there's interest from, you know, other state actors are looking at this and saying, hey, we, this is easy destabilize the G7 capital and immobilize the G7 country to a near standstill at one point, shutting up 25% of trade between two countries. That was impacting the United States as well. I, you know, people have to realize, and particularly those in elected office, that there is it is more than simply people being upset about, uh, oh, there's a bunch of trucks parked in front of Wellington, on Wellington Street in front of Parliament. It is far more than that. It, and there's been, you know, violence on the ground here. People do not feel safe. There's serious public safety concerns. The police have well, said it. Mohammed, let me ask you about that, though, because you, you live there. You've seen this since the day these guys rolled in here. How do you feel and how do you respond when you hear some of these, including Candace Bergen yesterday, and I'm sure they're going to repeat it today, talk about this as a quote-unquote peaceful protest. How do you how does that sit with you? I, I disagree with it uh, completely. As someone who lives right in downtown Ottawa, I I don't feel safe going near that. I have not gone anywhere near the, the occupation uh, where the, everything's going on. Uh, my fiance as well has not. I have a number of friends who, and I have friends who've been uh, near assaulted by some of these protesters or convoy occupiers, however you want to call them. There is serious concern about what what could happen and what has happened. And uh, the threat of uh, weapons is there. The police have noticed. Like so, it's, you don't feel comfortable in your own home. You don't feel comfortable in your surroundings. And and that's a feeling felt everywhere. And when you have an immobilized police force who won't fail to do anything, and then you have counter protesters trying to push back, doing the police's job, like it, it, it could get. It, I'm so you know I'm glad it hasn't gone ugly, but it's sometimes a little bit surprising that things haven't gone worse because people are so so frustrated and so disheartened by what's gone on here, um, and want just a resolution to be able to return to some sense of normalcy which is the end game here, I guess. And, and we'll see how that's going to unfold, I guess, in the next 24 hours or so. 
with some of the warnings from police. And of course, they passed those on uh, yesterday to, to some of the people that were still encamped, in, in, in I guess, in, in some of these areas. But here's the thing, and I know that, you know, partisan politics is always going to be an element in, in these debates. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at the opposition. I'm looking at, uh, for instance, in this case, the Conservative Party. Please, for the, you know, for the love of the country, do your job. Absolutely. Hold the government's feet to the fire. Hold them accountable. This is a very important piece of legislation, a very controversial piece of legislation that has never been enacted before since 1988 when it was, when it was born and passed by the conservative government of the day. So by all means, ask questions about this and make sure that they understand uh, exactly what in this legislation entails. And, and you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff they're talking about now is, well, what if? And, you know, well, if, if that's, you don't want them to abuse the legislation. You don't want any government to abuse the legislation. But it's being characterized right now as, as, a, as a takeover, uh, as, as a dictatorial uh, piece of legislation. And it's, it's, first of all, the liberals didn't draft this. Uh, it's been on the books since 1988. Uh, there are checks and balances. If it doesn't pass in the Commons and the Senate today, that's it. It, it, it you know, it's over. That, that you can't invoke something where Parliament says no, you can't, and that's written into the legislation too. So let's stick to the facts here and and debate this. And if you're going to vote against it after you get all that information, that's your choice. And but you have to live with the consequences. And this really all comes back to something you and I have been talking about for months now is people, when they say freedom, and that's one of the most abused words I've heard in the last six months now, too, uh, you want freedom, but you don't want responsibility. You know, you've got the right to do what you want to do, but there are going to be consequences to the choices you make. And and I, I wish the opposition parties would, uh, would understand that, too. Uh, I'd like to see a civil debate, a, a very serious debate, but a civil debate about these issues today instead of the, the bombast and rhetoric that's going back and forth that's only confusing people. Yeah, I... Uh... A return of civility and, and debate, I think, is, is I think everyone wants that. And, uh, you know, I completely agree. It's, you know, protests happen all the time, and especially in Ottawa. There's always protests. There's, you know, those who may have come for slightly positions or, or not, you know, whether it be climate change, abortion rights, potato farmers have come. Like, people blocked the street before, but no one has ever felt so unsafe ever. And, and a failure to realize that what's, what has happened and what is going on is, 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 is it remains shocking. And, and, and funny enough, for a party that, that really fights on law and order, they really bent over backwards to defend an occupation that violated every sense of the words law and order and what police, the, the, what police need to do and, and the security of the country and such. So it, it's been very disappointing to see what's, gone on from the other side and i hope truly things come back to it and, and to your point uh, there's also going to be a public inquiry as per the legislation for the emergency act uh, it's required to after you know about within a year uh, it needs to be tabled in parliament so that we've you know everyone understands what went on what rules were followed what you know was everything needed you know there's going to be a time for reflection uh, but there needs to be a recognition that this is not to your point, and I've said this before, that this is not a dictatorship. The fact that you can occupy a G7 capital shows that you don't live in a dictatorial authoritarian country like Saudi Arabia or Russia or China. You live in a free society that enables you to uh, peacefully protest and occupy, but also respect your rights as a human being. And they've been respected tenfold here and given fair uh, opportunity to make their voice heard and then take a step back. But not to the to the point of risking people's lives, their you know their safety, uh, but also the, the safety of the country. Well, and and you know I, I know we're just about out of time here, but I mean you know proper characterizations. I mean some people are uh, again saying that well this is the War Measures Act. No, it's not. That 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 a different piece of legislation. As a matter of fact, the re, the reason this legislation was born is because they thought that the War Measures Act was far too draconian. As I think it was one of the critics said at the time. So the conservative government of the, of the day, Mulroney's government, cleaned it up and said, "Here's here's one that's got more checks and balances." That's what we're dealing with here. It's not martial law. It's not the War Measures Act. But and and that kind of misrepresentation is only muddying the waters here. So I, I'm hoping that, as we said earlier in the show. The people that we elect for public office here are starting to act like adults, please, instead of some of the stuff we saw yesterday. 
Anyway, I know that uh, you'll be keeping an eye on things later on this afternoon. We certainly will, too, as the debate begins uh, in the comments in just a couple of minutes. Mohammed, as always, a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Talk to you soon. Take care. Mohammed Ali, senior consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies, living in Ottawa and seeing firsthand what's going on on the streets of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's having an impact on all of us. And of course, that's inflation, uh, cost of living, blockades, COVID-19 and, and things of that ilk, of course, have uh, helped push the national inflation rate to a 30 year high uh, in January. 5.1% is the number that they are throwing at us now. I mean, let's face it, the cost of discipline, everything went up, especially housing and groceries and things of that nature. University of Calgary economics professor Trevor Tome says that uh, rising inflation has put a lot of pressure on the Bank of Canada these days. If home prices continue to rise another 20% over the next year, then that will continue to be a contribution to higher rates of inflation. Oil prices too, if oil prices rise at the pace that they have been over the next year, then indeed they will continue to contribute to high rates of inflation. So let's talk about how we're going to get out of this. But before we do that, I think we have to understand just exactly what's causing this and, and the depth of the problem. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Marvin Ryder. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. And the overriding question, how do we tame the beast here? Mm-hmm. And I wish there was one arrow in a quiver that I could fire to kill that beast. Um, there really are, I think, two issues that are at play here. So you've mentioned part of this. Remember, in 2020, we locked down the economy. People were sent home. They were stayed at home. And they just stopped spending money. So we actually had a brief period, when I say brief, meaning three, four months, of what was called deflation. Prices actually went down. And this is the old law of supply and demand. If people aren't demanding goods, the supply stays constant. Well, prices go down. And then in 2021, uh, thanks to vaccines, thanks to other things, we started to lift some of those measures. And people, having been locked down for when they were, started coming out and spending money. And they were spending it actually much quicker than anyone had realized. Okay, what does that mean? So demand goes up, supply doesn't change, prices go up. And so we saw inflation starting not quite a year ago, but about nine months ago. We saw some inflation a little above what uh, the Bank of Canada likes, which is somewhere between 1% and 3%. But the feeling was, okay, that'll just be temporary. You know, Eventually they'll catch up on what they buy and they'll go back to buying at normal levels. But what we hadn't anticipated then were these supply chain problems. It all started with that boat that went sideways in the in the Suez Canal, and that delayed things, and suddenly people couldn't get goods, but they still wanted to buy goods, so again, prices go up. Uh, What's driving it today? Well, the biggest problem we have, I think, around the inflation number is world oil prices. Just six weeks ago, at Christmas time of 2021, a barrel of oil was $63. Now it's trading at nearly $95 a barrel. Well, that's a 50% price increase in oil, over just a six-week period. That's going to drive inflation. So I knew this when we got the December number of 4.8% inflation. Even though I would have loved to have seen it gone down in January because of oil prices, it went up to 5.1%. And so now what's going to happen with oil prices? Again, I think all things being equal, OPEC, because it's a cartel based on greed, will ultimately start pumping more oil and that will put more supply out there, and that should contribute to prices going down. But there's a big asterisk, and that's, of course, Russia. Most people don't realize it, but Russia is the third largest producer of oil in the world. It's behind Saudi Arabia, which is number two, and we've got this potential for a war in the Ukraine. Why is that significant? Well, uh, Europe depends a lot on Russian oil. They don't depend as much on Saudi Arabian oil, but they depend upon Russian oil, and they also depend upon Russian natural gas. And the pipelines that bring those two commodities to Europe run through, you guessed it, the Ukraine, so that if there's an invasion, if there's a war, that supply might get cut off. Suddenly, Europe's got to find new things, more demand. You know what that means. The price of oil is going to go up even more. If you don't like a dollar fifty, a dollar sixty at the pumps, you're not going to like it if it gets to two dollars, and that's a possibility 
if there's war in that region. And, of course, $2 for gasoline would put even more pressure on inflation. Now, there's some other things in here. The food inflation has gone up. Food has gone up about 6%. And then, of course, the price of housing has gone up. So you, when you roll all of this together, the, the, the clip you ran earlier is absolutely correct. There is now going to be tremendous pressure on the Bank of Canada when it looks at its prime lending rate in two weeks. That happens on Wednesday, March the 2nd, I think it is. They're going to take a look at this and say, okay, it's time to raise those rates. That 0.25% doesn't work. I believe they're only going to raise it a quarter of a point and make it a half a percent in total. I won't be shocked if they decide to even send a stronger signal and make it a whole half-point jump and take it up to three-quarters. Still very, very low in the history of Canada. And for a person with a mortgage, if you had to renew at that point rather than getting a mortgage in the high, uh, in the 2 to 3% range, maybe it'll be in more of the middle 2 to mid-3 range, it will hit your pocketbook a little bit. But the idea is let's discourage people from spending money. And this is the only tool really in the arsenal to try to help bring this down. I'm going to go back to the housing thing in a second. That's important. But just back to the to the, the gasoline and the fuel, yep. uh, and I guess natural gas to a certain extent too. Uh, I, I don't know if people have a full grasp of, of how sensitive it is to world politics. You know, we think, okay, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, we know about the cartels and we have all that stuff that's going for us. And But we saw that even this week. Uh, you know, earlier in the week, there was a story about how it, it looked, uh, at least to some observers, as if Russian troops were, were starting to leave the Ukraine border. And all of a sudden, overnight, the price of gasoline went down. Uh, and then they said, no, no, they're, no, they're still there. And the price went back up the day after that. Right. It's, it's, it's amazing how quickly these things re- respond to the politics that's going on. Well, that's part of it. And the other part of it, you can blame you and I. So once upon a time, whenever the world price of oil changed, it took roughly five weeks for the change to be reflected at the pumps. And, and uh, when it was in our favor, in other words, when the price of oil went up, well, at least we had five weeks where we had the old oil that was coming through the refineries, the cheaper oil, at least we got to take advantage of that. But over the time, and especially in the last six years, we've seen tremendous volatility in the price of oil. There was a time in 2020, there was a time in 2020 where the world price of oil actually went negative, meaning you had to pay people to take it off your hands. <laughs> and we said, okay, okay, look, oh, world oil prices have come down, lower those prices at the pumps. What we wanted was instantaneous change. We didn't want to wait for the oil to work its way through the system. Come on, lower the prices right now. So the gas company said, okay, we can do that for you, but then if we lower it when you want, we've also got to take it up when you don't want. We've got to make it instantaneous. And, of course, if it's going down, yeah, 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 I want to change. I want that change now. The minute we revert back to going up, no, no, wait, I want you to delay. You can't have it both ways. You've got to have one method or the other, and the gasoline companies, they decide to use the more current pricing model rather than the historical pricing model. No, and, and again, the, one of the arguments from, you know, weary consumers, I guess you would say, is, well, come on, North American production's ramped up considerably in the last yeah. 20 years. Uh, you know, not just here in Canada, but especially down in the States, there's a lot yeah. more production going on. Why aren't the prices falling as a result of that? But explain to us, you know, about the, I guess, the pressures that are on uh, when it comes to pricing. I mean, whether, you know, they're, they're refining it down in Louisiana or they're refining it over in, you know, Ukraine. Uh, yeah. is, is it the same price based on world markets? Right. So, so let me try that a little bit. Uh, uh, the number one producer of oil in the world, can you guess who that is? Is it the United States? It's the United States. They're the number one. So actually today, the United States is self-sufficient in energy, and Canada is self-sufficient in energy, meaning the oil that we produce matches the amount we need. The problem is that we produce most of the oil in Alberta and Saskatchewan, some in in, uh, Newfoundland, but the refineries that we need for this area are located in Oakville and Mississauga. So how do we get that oil here? And it's actually the oil companies who are behind this, it's not the Canadian government, have found it's more economical to import some oil from other parts of the world to feed Ontario's demand and take the oil that they 
of Alberta and send it south into the United States. And then in parts of the United States, say in the Gulf regions, they actually export that oil. We all work out to be self-sufficient, but it doesn't mean we don't import oil. Now, let me just use a different example, Bill. Let's take gold. Hey, we know that Canada has gold mines. If I want to buy Canadian gold, what price do I pay for it? I pay the exact same price as gold done in the rest of the world. There would be no reason for a Canadian manufacturer of gold to give a discounted price because, hey, you know, I'm national, so I'll give you a cheaper price. Because the minute you start offering cheaper prices, there would be enterprising Canadians who would buy that gold at that lower price and then resell it on the world market and they'd make a profit. So what happens is we go by the world standard. So even Canadian oil whether it's done in Alberta or New Brunswick or, or excuse me, Newfoundland or in Saskatchewan, we, you and I, are going to pay the same price as the world price. And remember, that's not a government decision. The government controls some of the licenses for removal of the oil, but it's actually the companies that do this. They're going to sell this at the world price. So our prices for gasoline move at the world rates. All right, since we're talking about that uh, and transportation of, of that very precious commodity, right. uh, let me, if I could, just pivot for a little bit and start talking about pipelines, mm-hmm. uh, which has been a factor, I guess, you know, obviously the Biden administration's cancellation of, of, a, of that huge pipeline that the Trump administration had already thought was going to uh, be a go. Uh, then, of course, we've got the debate that's going on in Michigan right now with Line 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor there wants to shut that down. Uh, now we've got a report from some Canadian environmental group that says, don't worry about that. Canada's got replacement parts that you can use. And as a matter of fact, it might even increase capacity if they did that. The importance of pipelines, and I know this gets into an environmental argument uh, versus an economic argument, uh, but you know, the alternatives, if we shut every pipeline down, would be catastrophic, wouldn't they? Well, I, I'm going, I hate to say this to you. You would think it'd be catastrophic. Uh, the environmental groups in particular would say shut down those pipelines because now the oil is going to stay in the ground. And keeping the oil in the ground, that's the best thing for the environment. But while we are transitioning to a less, uh, an economy less dependent upon oil, if I shut down all the pipelines today, we're still going to need that oil tomorrow. So the alternative to delivering the oil to refineries by pipelines is to do it in tanker cars on trains. And I, I, I don't mean to bring up an issue from the past, but it's not that long ago that a, a town in Quebec, Lac-Megantic, uh, burned to the ground when a series of train cars derailed and exploded and burned. And we actually, the number of tanker cars delivering oil in North America has gone up by a factor of 10 over the last five or six years because of lack of pipeline capacity. Now, absolutely, Gretchen Whitmer has a great comment because this Line 5 comes down and crosses uh, the northern part, I think it's around Sault Ste. Marie, and it has to go underwater to get across. And if something were to happen, if that pipeline, an anchor were to hit it, or there was some seismic activity or whatever it happened to be, and that were to leak, you know, think of millions and millions of liters of oil into the fresh water of the Great Lakes, yes, it would be quite a disaster. Uh, so her solution is to shut it down. My solution would be, well, let's take the efforts, which is what uh, uh, TransCanada Pipeline and Enbridge and others are doing. Let's rebuild these pipelines to more modern standards, put in more safeguards to allow that free flow. Now, the environmental group you're speaking about, I think it's called Line 78, they have discovered that there is a pipeline that's not that well used that would take Alberta oil, but rather than run it north of Lake Superior, it would cross into the United States in a land area, um, probably in Minnesota, uh, somewhere in that area, maybe it's North Dakota. And then it comes down and it goes below Lake Michigan, and it would still then feed into the refineries in Michigan and also into Sarnia. Now, it does still have to cross water to get into Sarnia, but Gretchen Whitmer doesn't seem to worry about that bit of water. Her worry is the water in the north. And so the environmental group says, well, look, we've got some pipelines that aren't that well used. With a little bit of effort, they could spruce those up. They could increase the capacity, and that capacity doesn't have to be lost. And again, if you ask TransCanada Pipeline or you ask Enbridge, they would say, yes, that's possible to do, but that wasn't our plan. And in fact, I think their plan was to phase out uh, Line 78 in favor of Line 5. So the, I, I don't, I, none of us are that detailed in the company to know why they prefer one versus the other and what the economics are. But the, the reality is, even though we are making significant strides to transition to an economy less dependent on oil, 
We still need oil today, and we'll still need oil five years from now and ten years from now, uh, ultimately maybe 30, 40 years from now less. So how do we get it to the market safely? And I, I prefer pipelines to train cars because the disasters that can happen with train cars tipping over and burning and what have you seem to me to be much higher than disasters we get from pipelines. Well, and that debate's ongoing, and as uh, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's before the courts right now. The Canadian government has stepped into that, and well, we're hoping there's going to be some resolution of that in uh, in, the, in the next couple of months. Just to bring it right back to to where we started from here with uh, that very very important part of our economy, of course, of, of, of consumption and fuel and and housing. Uh, the bottom line here is the Bank of Canada is going to have to respond, as you said. There were a lot of people that were surprised when they didn't raise the rate uh, the last time they had the opportunity. Uh, and now I'm hearing that we could be in for like some rapid fire increases, like, you know, uh, four or five, they're saying in the next 12 months. Is, what's that going to do to people's confidence in the economy? <laughs> well, actually, I don't, I don't think it'll be a big problem. So let, let's go back. The Bank of Canada meets eight times a year to set rates. And in its first meeting in January, they didn't move anything. I am now absolutely certain that they're going to move it in first uh, first meeting in March. But then I'm also confident they'll pause because the Bank of Canada doesn't want to trigger a negative response. It doesn't want to trigger, of course, the big R word, a recession from all of this. So what they would like to do is move the rates and then sit back and monitor. It's almost like watching COVID. What impact does this have? So they'll probably pass at uh, uh, increasing rates at the end of April, early May. The next increase might happen in June or July. And my crystal ball says that over the course of this calendar year, on three of the seven remaining meetings, they're likely going to increase the rates by a quarter of a point. That would take it to the end of this year at a 1% rate by the Bank of Canada, which means that if you went to the bank to get a mortgage, you'd be paying in the 35 maybe up to 4% range, still much lower than the average over time. Then we'll have to see what the world is like by that. And, and again, keep in mind that the Bank of Canada doesn't create the environment. They react to the environment. And the big question mark remains uh, our good friends in the Ukraine. Just one other quick thing, Bill, if I can. Housing prices, the, your, the fellow you had quoted there, absolutely right. We can't see housing prices go up 20% a year for five years in a row. That's just craziness. The dream scenario of the Bank of Canada would be to have a six, nine, twelve 12-month period where there's virtually no movement. So, yes, one month house prices might go up 1%. The next month they might come down 1%. We do not want housing prices to come down 10%. Now, I know that if you wanted to get into the market, you'd love to see housing prices come down 10%. But any person who had bought over the last year or two would suddenly see their entire down payment wiped away because of the house price fall. And then, then you'd go back to the situation we had in 2007-8, where people started walking away from houses, gave them back to the bank. The bank couldn't recover their uh, uh, loans on this, and this triggered a recession. Uh, so we don't want that response. The dream response is basically a freeze in the housing market. And again, the thinking is if we increase these interest rates, make borrowing a little more expensive for people, maybe people who can't really afford a house at this time will pause, save money, and get in later. Again, nobody knows for certain, but we're going to watch the Bank of Canada. They're the ones who really have the most cards to play in this situation. It's not the federal government. Marvin, always a uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for really uh, clarifying a pretty muddy issue, I think, for an awful lot of us. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again. Glad to be with you, Bill. You betcha. Marvin Ryder, of course, from the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.